You guys can grab a seat. Uh, how much do you love John Jackson? I love that guy. And his, and his team, all of you guys who are walking up, I love you guys. I love John, the way he leads us. I love more than that, the way that he pursues the Lord and, and is just a man after his own heart. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach for a minute, then I'm going to get out of the way so John can get back up here and we can worship a little bit more later tonight. Um, if you'll grab a Bible and open up to Romans chapter 6. My name is Kyle. I'm glad I can be here tonight. Um, Romans 6, where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in front of you. Uh, that we're going to be on page 942 of those Bibles tonight. If you don't own a Bible, on your way out tonight there are tables and there should be stacks of Bibles. We would love for you to grab one of those. That's our gift to you uh, to take that back to your room and, and just to spend some time in it. Uh, but we're in Romans. We're studying that this semester and this year. Uh, the semester's flying by. I think there's four or five more cross points and then Christmas break. So we are nearing the end of the semester. We're nearing the halfway point of Romans. And as you turn to Romans 6, uh, there, there's these words of Jesus that... that really throughout my life have haunted me in a good way. And I remember reading the Bible as a kid and reading these, these statements from Jesus, and, and now I'm, I'm 36, and, and pretty much my practice, I like other parts of the Bible, but I just, I constantly stay in the Gospels. And I've just read them and read them and read them and read them, and it's amazing how you read them over and over again, and you can always see new things. And, and there's these statements that every time I read them, they, they intrigue me, and the words and works of Jesus just kind of bring me to life over and over again. There's one sentence that I remember reading as a kid. I remember reading in college. I've read it over and over again. But Jesus was describing to the people what life with him was like. And he just looked out at them. And you may remember John 10. He's describing who he was. And he uses this analogy of, of him being the good shepherd. And he's just kind of explaining life with him. And in, in John 10, 10, he just tells them why he came. He says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. It's this beautiful promise from Jesus. I remember reading it as a kid and just thinking, man, that is amazing. That, that Jesus tells us the reason that he came to the earth is that we may have life, and not just have life, but have it abundantly. And I've read that over and over again and just thought about the beauty of that promise that Jesus is telling us the whole reason for him being here and the whole reason that he wants us to draw near to him is not just that you'd be alive, but he, he describes it as abundant life. Depending on the translation, it says overflowing life or full life. And I want to just ask you tonight, as we jump into Romans 6, is that your experience? Is that what life feels like to you? It feels abundant. It feels overflowing. It feels, feels rich. See, I remember reading those words, and, and I know that for a lot of my life, as I would read that and hear that from Jesus, I would long for that, but I would be really honest with you and tell you that that's not what life feels like most of the time. So I'd read that promise from Jesus, and I'd be like, Jesus, yes, I want that. I want life. I want life abundantly. I want this overflowing kind of life that you've promised me. And then for the majority of my life, I would walk through the day, and it wouldn't feel abundant. It wouldn't feel overflowing. It would feel empty and lonely and, and depressing. So I remember I'd come to a place like this, and I would come to church and look around, and during the worship time, it looked like everybody else around me had abundant life. So we were raising their hands and singing loud and, and worshiping, and I would sit in the back and I would try to get into it, and something in me was just hearing these words of Jesus, you'll have life and you'll have it abundantly, and I knew that there was just something missing in my life, and I had no idea what it was. And all of you looked like you had it all together, and so I just thought that somehow I was the one that, that's missed out on that, and I just wanted to know, what does it mean to have abundant life? Well, what was Jesus describing, and what am I missing that I don't have this promise of Jesus. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. That's what Romans 6 is all about. Paul is addressing that. When Jesus makes this promise, you will have life, and not just life, you'll have abundant life. You'll have overflowing life. What he's looking at is he's looking at why it doesn't feel like that sometimes. That if Jesus promised abundant life, why are so many of us not living with it? Why, why was that not the typical experience for most of us, even those who call ourselves Christians? 
And, and here is Paul's answer. This is what it's taken me a long time to, to realize, that, that Paul's going to tell us in Romans 6 that the reason that most of us don't feel like life is abundant is because most of us live in only half of the gospel. We, we may know the gospel and understand the gospel, but for most of us, our experience, we are missing and living in only half of the gospel. So we've heard it and we know it, but there's this second half of the gospel that for most of us, even though we've heard it and sing about it, it's not the way we live our lives. And so life feels empty and, and doesn't feel abundant. See, that, that's a big part of my story. Like I said, I'm 36 years old. I became a Christian when I was seven years old. So I've been a Christian for, for 29 years now. That's even hard for me to, to imagine. But I've been following Jesus and, and, and really trying to understand what it means to live with him. And for a big portion of that, in fact, for, for half of that, I would say there was no abundance. There was, there was no joy. And I'm assuming that, that I'm not alone in this, and I, I know I'm not alone in this because I talk to a lot of you. And I talk to a lot of people that go through lives and they call themselves Christians, but the whole time they're coming to places like this and, and coming to worship services and just wondering, am I the only one who feels this? Am I the only one that when I read John 10, I, I hear that and I long for that, but I don't know how to, how to have that. And so if you're there tonight, I think this passage is going to be really helpful for you. I've been praying that the Lord would just pour himself on you through this. It's going to tell us how easy it is to, to really miss half the gospel and to really stay in this place where life doesn't feel abundant. So, so let me just explain what I mean by that. What do I mean by we, we only experience half the gospel? If you were to write down what the gospel is, or if I were to just sit down across the table from you and just say, what, do I, what is the gospel? What does the gospel mean? I think most of us very quickly would nail down this, this first half of the gospel that most of us have heard all of our lives, that there's this part of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us. And that is an amazing message, that, that Jesus died on the cross to forgive us. For me as a little kid, I remember getting that. And I remember as a seven-year-old, I didn't really understand the depths of sin, and I didn't really understand everything about it, but I knew as a seven-year-old, I'm a sinner, meaning that I have done things I shouldn't do, and I have thought things I shouldn't think, and that I, I knew that, that I was a sinner. And I knew that the second half of the gospel was true, that, that Jesus was God who became a man and dwelt on the earth and lived a perfect life. And at the end of his life, rather than, than, than ruling with power, he laid down his life, and he laid down his life that, that I would be forgiven. Right? So I'd been around church, and I'd read my Bible, and I knew that part, that there was this part of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins, and that was a beautiful part of it. And so I'm hoping that, that a lot of you know that tonight, but, but I want you to know there's a second half to that. See, Jesus didn't remain dead. Did he? It's not just Jesus died on the cross. As beautiful as that is, it's not just forgiveness. There's this second half of the gospel that we miss. And, and what is it? It's the resurrection. See, Christianity is not just the death of Christ, as meaningful as that is. And Christianity is not just forgiveness, as beautiful as that is. There, there's this second half of Christianity. It's not just death, it's resurrection. And it's not just forgiveness, it's, it's power. It's not just forgiveness, it's abundant life, it's authority, it's a new way of living your life, it's a different life, it's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said that. And so here is Paul's argument, he's saying there's more to the gospel than just his death, as meaningful as it is, that, that there's, there's forgiveness and that's beautiful, that, that there's more than just the death, there is, there's new life. Right, so there's this second half of the gospel, and it's what Romans 6 is all about. Paul's going to move into these chapters where he just nails down on this second half of the gospel that I think so many of us may even think about and know about intellectually, but we don't live here. And Paul's going to bring us to this place saying, listen, not only forgiveness, as beautiful as that is, resurrection. And, and Jesus' resurrection means that you have been raised to newness of life with him, that there's now power and authority, that you can walk through life and not just wait until you die to go to heaven. 
You can walk through life knowing that tomorrow I'm going to walk with the Holy Spirit living in me and I'm going to walk through the day expectantly. That he's going to use me and he's going to speak to me as a son and he's going to send me out to call others to himself. See, Jesus' death gives us forgiveness and that's great, that's great news. But Jesus' resurrection gives us power and it gives us authority and it gives us this newness of life and it's what's been missing for so many of us. We live and we stay in the death of Jesus and we miss out on the best part of the story that Jesus didn't just die, he resurrected and it's in the resurrection that we have life and that we have meaning. And so, so look at Romans 6 with me. I'm going to just read through this. Uh, before we jump into to Romans 6, Paul has spent the first five chapters explaining that first part. So if you've been here the last ten weeks for Crosspoint, the first five chapters of the book of Romans is really addressed to that first part of the gospel that Jesus' death does bring me forgiveness. So if you've been here, the, if you've been here these ten weeks, we've been really hitting the same thing over and over again, that we are all sinners, And so Paul starts there early on in the book, and he just says, listen, we are all sinners. Some are Jewish sinners, some are Gentile sinners, but we're all sinners. He says, some of you are really rebellious sinners. You go and do really overtly sinful things, and then some of you are very religious sinners, but you're sinners as well. So Paul has just laid this truth out that everyone is a sinner, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, whether you are rebellious or religious, that we are all sinners, and because of our sin, there's this penalty that we should bear called death. So Paul just begins to lay out for us that we're sinners and that we deserve to bear the penalty for our sin, which is is death. He's speaking there not just of physical death, that that our bodies are going to begin to break down and that eventually we're all going back to the ground. But even more significant than that, he's speaking of this spiritual death that our sin brings that because of our rebellion against God, whether it's rebellion that, that that is partying and living the life that we shouldn't live or it's just very religious, I'm going to be good on my own. That, that that attitude, that rebellion has separated us from a holy and righteous God and that we bear the penalty for that. So, so if you were here the first few weeks, it was kind of depressing because Paul is just hammering that home. Our sin that has produced death and then he turns the corner and he began to tell us that Jesus came and died and took our punishment. That, that this first part of the gospel is true and how meaningful it is. That, that Jesus came and died and took our punishment and he began to just share the, the good news of the gospel that we are saved from the penalty of sin the moment we believe. And it's this profound, unimaginable truth that the moment you believe the penalty of sin, which is death, was done away with. It was gone. In a moment. Right, so as a seven-year-old, I, I, I got down on my knees with my parents. They explained the gospel to me. I was sitting beside my, my wooden bunk bed. And I have no idea what was in my mind, but I knew, like I said, I was a sinner and that Christ had come and, and died for me. And so I remember just saying this prayer to God, and I didn't know if I was getting the words right, I was seven years old, so I can guarantee I didn't get the words right. But I was just on my floor praying to God, and, and in that moment, all of my sin was wiped away. It's amazing. Past sin, I don't know what my past sin was as a seven-year-old. I hadn't killed anybody or anything, but my past sin, whatever present things I was struggling with as a seven-year-old, but mo- most of it was future, right? As a seven-year-old, at that point, most of my sin was future sin, and in that moment, the blood of Christ covered every single bit of it. And so Paul has just been laying out the profound beauty of that, that at the moment of belief, that's what happens. Whether you're seven or 70, that at that moment, all of your sin is is covered, it's taken away. And and Paul, as he lays that out, he begins to realize how scandalous that is. He begins to realize that, that when you even hear that, there's something in your mind that pushes back and says, can it really be that easy? That, that God is not asking me to do anything first. He's, he's asking me to believe. And at the moment of belief, before I've done anything good, he gives me everything. He, he forgives me completely. See, Paul knows that even when you hear that, there's this pushback that goes on in your mind. So, so now look at Romans 6, verse 1. 
He knows that you're arguing with him in your mind about the concept of grace. Because that's what grace does. It makes you hear it and say, can that really be true? So, so look at where he goes in Romans 6 verse 1. He, he actually asks the question that probably you're asking and that his readers were asking. He anticipates the argument to grace. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right, so, so he's laid out this concept of, of radical grace for five chap- chapters that we are forgiven and accepted by God when we believe. That, that this relationship with God is given to us, it's not earned. It's something that we receive from him, not something that we perform our way into. He's laid that out for five chapters and Paul knows how radical and how unbelievable the concept of grace is. That we're given something freely that we didn't earn simply by believing and, and he anticipates our reaction to that truth. He's having this hypothetical argument with, with, a, with a person that, that asks the question, so what do we have to do to be saved? And Paul looks back at him and says, you, you don't do anything, you believe. That, that you're to believe in what Christ has done, not do things for Christ. You, you believe who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and in that moment, all of your sin is forgiven. And Paul knew that our hearts would respond to that by, by pushing back. He knew that we would have some questions in response to the radical concept of grace, and he begins just to, to, to state those. He says, so, so hypothetically, we don't have to do anything to be forgiven and saved. Paul says, that's right. And grace means that you don't do anything to earn it. it, it that we just believe, and then, we, and then the, the question that, that he begins to flesh out here, so we can just live however we want. Right? That, that's the question behind verse 1. So if, if it's that easy, I can just believe, and then the rest of my life I can do whatever I want. I can keep sinning. In fact, I can sin more because I've been given this, this free gift. And so he knows that the opponents of grace are asking this question, doesn't this encourage sin? If you keep preaching radical grace, people are going to go sin more. That they're going to know that they've been given a free gift and then they're going to live their life doing whatever they want to do for the rest of their lives. They can just continue in their, their sin. Right, so I want you to see Paul's response to this. Verse 2, he goes on, he asks the question, then he goes and says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means. Uh, it's the strongest way he could possibly word that. He says, may it never be. And what Paul is beginning to explain here is that if that is your understanding of the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. That if your understanding of the gospel is, I receive this free gift and then I increase in sin. And then I, I go for the rest of my life and do whatever I want to do. You only understand half the gospel. And in fact, you don't understand the gospel at all. See, Paul is going to argue here the gospel is not just death, it's resurrection. It's not just forgiveness from sins. It's more than that. It's power and freedom from the bondage of sin that's destroying you. It's not just something that happens when you die. It's about something that happens immediately and impacts the way that you live. You haven't just been forgiven. You've been been freed. You've been set free from something that's destroying you. Do, Do you see that? So Paul just lays this out and just listen to his wording. He's begging us to get this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, Paul is just making this argument and he's pleading with us and, and laying out both parts of the gospel, death and resurrection, forgiveness and power. And he just looks back at us and he says, yes, it's, it's true, you are saved by grace. Jesus came and died to forgive you and in the moment of belief, your life was baptized. 
And that's not speaking of the water baptism that you see. That is a symbol of what's happened internally. The word baptized means to be immersed in or to be wrapped with. So he's using this word not simply of water baptism. He's saying in the moment of belief, you are wrapped up in Jesus. There's this beautiful image that you were there and then all of a sudden in the moment of belief, Jesus' life swallowed you up. So that when God looks down on you, he no longer sees you. He sees you wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. He sees you wrapped up in everything that Christ was. He says you are literally in Christ. Right? So you see Paul use this language throughout his, his writings that he's in Christ. And it's not just a, a neat signature at the end of a letter. It's saying, this is who I am now. That at the moment of belief, Christ wrapped me up. And so when Jesus died, I died with him. That, that his death was my death and that sin's penalty was gone immediately before I did anything. I was wrapped up in Jesus and that's great news. But notice what he goes on to say. Jesus didn't just come to forgive your sin. He came to give you new life. He came to give you this newness of life. And that, that Christianity is not just about what happens to you when you die. It's about this com- completely new way of living. It's about the abundant life that Jesus promised. See, this is where so many of us live in half the gospel. The gospel is not just Jesus died to forgive my sins, as great as that is. The gospel is also Jesus rose again to give me new life. And I'm afraid that so many of us miss that. It's not just when I die, I'll go to heaven. Right? As great as the truth is that we get to be with him eternally, it's while I live, I get to live a meaningful life with God and for God. That, that through the blood of Christ, he brings me back in as a son, and then he sends me back out with a message of grace and of hope. I get to go and live with him and, and for him. That I'm given freedom from sin and power and authority. It's, it's no longer my master. I'm no longer a slave to it. See, so like I said, this is such a big part of my story that, that as a seven-year-old, I accepted Jesus, and right at that moment, I, I was forgiven completely. At that moment, past and present and future sins, Jesus' blood covered it and paid for every sinful act, every sinful thought, every sinful motive, the sin of my heart that's still here that I don't even know is there, that at that moment, everything was covered in a moment. But for the next 13 years of my life, from when I was seven to when I was about 20, For the next 13 years of my life, I just walked through life knowing that something was missing but not knowing what it was. And I'll tell you the the, the conversation that happened in my mind a million times. I would go to church and I would hear a sermon, I would hear worship, and at the end of the sermon, I would just sit there and wrestle with, am I really a Christian? Do, Do I feel this way because I'm not really forgiven? Do I feel this way because I haven't done the right thing, I haven't said the prayer right or walked the aisle enough or done enough things? And I would sit there and wrestle with that. And I remember so many times really being convinced, I really do believe that I'm a Christian. I really do believe that I've repented and I'm trying to follow, but something just doesn't feel right. And if you would have asked me to summarize my Christian life from 7 to 20, I would have told you I was pretty sure I was going to heaven when I died, but there was no life outside of that. None. And so I would come to places like this, and I just learned to play the game. I would come to places like this, and I had learned to speak the language, that I could say the right things and raise my hands at the right moments. And then I would go back to my dorm room or I would go back to wherever I was, it was home, and I would just sit and just wonder, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel like this? And this is what it was. Paul explains it so clearly. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. so, So the death of Jesus, that you did enter into that with him, but look at what he says, in order that, or so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, Paul's argument is Jesus died so that you could live again. He didn't just die so that your sin would die. He died so that you could live again in freedom from that sin. 
That death was just a means to an end. That death was just the beginning of the process. It happened so that we could live a new life, a powerful life. And so, so I need to just ask, before we read the rest of this passage together, is it possible that that's what's going on with you tonight? Is it possible that you were where I was for 13 years of my life, pretty confident that I had prayed the right prayer and that I would confessed and believed and that I really could call myself a Christian, but at the same time walking through life empty and, and miserable and just looking around wondering, is there something wrong with me? Is there something that I've missed that everybody else has, has understood? See, the gospel is not just death, it's resurrection. And so many of us stay in the death of Christ and we plead for forgiveness over and over and over again and it's been given to us. And we're begging for something that God's already done. And he's saying, listen, I want you to not only understand the death, I want you to see that I came back to give you newness of life. That the Spirit now dwells in you and lives in you and wants to give you power. That it's death and resurrection, forgiveness and, and power. So, so look at the next five verses. Look at verse five. Paul is just going to repeat this over and over again. And he's going to say it in different words and try to just nail it down over and over and over again. Death and resurrection, forgiveness and power. Don't just live in half of this. Live in all of this and find life in it. And he says in verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right? It's not just death, it's resurrection. You didn't just die and get forgiven. You were raised again with Jesus. He, was, he had swallowed you up. So when he rose again from the dead, you also rose again from the dead. He says, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from, from sin. And Jesus, is, Paul is just looking and he's saying, listen, I want you to understand what Jesus has done. He's taken the old you and he's put it to death when he died on the cross. That your old self who was enslaved to sin is now a new self who is set free from sin. That the Jesus' death forgave you, but Jesus' new life has raised you up and set you free. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See, Paul is just begging us to see death and resurrection. That there's these two sides of the gospel. There's forgiveness and there's power and authority. And he's just arguing for us that, that when you believed, you were baptized into Jesus. You were swallowed up in him. You were wrapped in him. And what that means is that everything that's true of him is now true of me and of you who, who have believed. That, that in the death of Jesus, our sins were forgiven, but also in the, the raising of Jesus, something profound has happened. So, so I want to just ask you the question to try to drive this home. Where is Jesus right now? If everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you and me who are believers, where is Jesus now? What is he doing? Anybody know? Where is Jesus now? He's at the right hand of the Father. Correct? Listen to Ephesians 1. It says that God raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but that is in the, name, the age to come. Hear what he's saying? That, that Jesus didn't stay in the grave, that when Jesus resurrected, he came back to life and was placed in this position at the right hand of the Father, the position of authority, the position of, of power, what that means is that Christ is reigning over all the things that's always held mankind into bondage. That, that, Satan, that, that Satan and sin and death and all these things that hold us down as humans, that, that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Meaning that what has happened to him has happened to all of us. And that we're now in this position. So, so Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And listen to where Paul goes with this in Ephesians 2. 
He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So so do you see what Paul's describing here in Romans and Ephesians? Not not only did Christ go to the grave to kill your sin, he rose again, and when he rose again, he, he was raised to the right hand of the Father. That the right hand of the king in those days, that was the place of authority. It was the place of getting to make the calls in life. So he's saying you are now not just forgiven of your sin, you are in Christ. You've been swallowed up by Christ. And where Christ is, is ruling above every power, every authority and dominion, above every name that is named. If you are in Christ, if you have believed, that is your position right now. You're no longer under the authority of sin. You're no longer under the authority of Satan. You're no longer under the authority of your flesh. You're now raised up with him and seated at the right hand of the Father that you can live a new and powerful life. And that is what so many of us miss. We go through life just simply thinking, I'm forgiven. Simply thinking that that when I die, I'll go to heaven to be with Jesus. And Jesus is looking back down at us and saying, listen, I've swallowed you up, but my life became your life. And I died to kill your sin, but I rose again to give you this new position. This, this new place as sons and daughters of the king, ruling and reigning with the king. Do, do you see how amazing this is? That, that you are forgiven, but you're not just forgiven. The gospel is so much greater than that. You're not just forgiven. You're raised up with Christ, and you now have new life. You have power and authority over the things that, that, that have always held you prisoner, that have always held you captive. And now as a prisoner who has been freed, you have the power and authority to say no to things that enslaved you before. That's what Paul's laying out. You, you have authority to say no to the things that once enslaved you and to go out and preach and live out the gospel to help others find freedom in Christ. So, so look at where Paul goes with this. He's just going to continue to unpack this. Verse 11, we'll read these four, four verses and be done. But Paul just begins to apply this. and He says, listen, I want you to know this. I want you to believe this. So right in the, in the verses we just read, he kept saying, we know, we believe, we know, we believe. He's just reminding us, this is what Christians believe. But, but look at where he goes in verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. Just, do, you, do you see what he does here? He moves from beliefs now to commands. He says, we believe these things. We know these things. We believe that we're dead in Christ. We believe that we're raised up with him. And now he says, so you must consider this. So, so, so what is the difference between knowing something and this word that Paul uses of considering it? it? It's the difference between knowing something and believing something. Does that make sense? You can know something that you don't really believe because you don't act on it. Right, so most of you probably know that you should study more to make good grades. But a lot of you are going to know that but not do anything, right? You're just going to try to float by the rest of the semester, get your D for diploma, and get out of here. That's, that's your, your plan, Right? Most of us know that we should eat healthy and work out so that our bodies will be in better shape. Right? But when that alarm clock goes off, most of us know there's a snooze button that we can hit and stay in bed a bit longer. Right? So, so there is a profound difference between knowing something mentally and believing something. But when the Bible talks about belief, it is knowledge that leads to action. It's not just merely knowledge. I, I can know about Christ and not believe in Christ. I can know that I should do some things and no, do nothing with them. And so when Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, he's saying, this is absolutely true. But there's a truth that, that you can just know, and there's a truth that you can act on. And so the command is, you have to act on this. This isn't just a truth to hold in your head and to, to, to puff yourself up that you know this. This is something that's supposed to lead to life. 
And in order for it to lead to life, you have to act on it. See, when, when the Bible gives commands, it means that these things aren't just automatic. That these things don't just happen passively. You don't defeat sin. You don't reign and, and live an abundant life automatically. We, we, these commands are given that we must pursue this and that we must take what we know to be true and constantly and continually put them into action. And so he's saying you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You probably, most of you, if you've been around church for a while, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that. But I would bet that most of you don't walk through your day considering that, believing that. All right, so, so the way it plays out in my life, some days I'll wake up early, and I've got three little kids, and so I have to get up really early and get a cup of coffee before their feet hit the ground, because once their feet hit the ground, things are over. Right? So I have to get up early and spend time with God. And, and what my time with God usually looks like, I'll read a little bit, and then I'll just take time just setting my mind back on these things. Because I, I know and I've believed a long time ago, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to Christ. And I'll just sit there and I'll dwell on that and it'll be true for me and I'll, I'll find life in that. And then about 6.30, the little feet hit the ground, they come running down the stairs, they destroy the house, they need to be fed, they need to go to school. And by about 10 o'clock, these things that I know I'm not walking in anymore. And, and so I'll have to stop and just say, okay God, I'm going to stop for a minute and just breathe this back in. I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to Christ. I'm not only forgiven, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the resurrection has given me new power to go and walk through this day and not just survive, but to live abundant life. And so I'll do that, and usually about two hours later, I'll have to pray it again and again and again. And it's these truths that most of us know and most of us intellectually hold to. There's something that happens between our head and our heart that over and over again we have to force it just from truth to something I actually believe, something I actually live out. And so looking back from, from the time I was seven to, to the time that I was 20, there were truths that I knew that I didn't live in. I, I knew that God was a God of love, but I didn't live in that. I, I knew that Christ had died and that I didn't have to be guilty anymore, but I didn't live in that. I knew that, that, that the Holy Spirit came to empower me, but I didn't live in that. And so Paul is just begging us, don't just know these things. Live in them. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is a continual command. That, that today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, you're going to have to remind yourself again. Because what happens for me when I wake up, there's this default mode in me that takes me back to being selfish. It takes me back to being fearful. It takes me back to, being, to, to this performance mode for God. He's saying, I want you to continually consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. See, Paul is just begging us, listen, this is true and, and you've been given a new position in Christ. Now go and live that out. That, that you're no longer a slave. Don't act like a, a slave any longer. That you're not to let sin reign. It's this, this language that involves slavery. That, that sin is reigning over you. And that Christ has come and has defeated this, this, this sin so it no longer is your master. It's no longer your king. But you can still live under its power. And you can dethrone it and then put it back on the throne. And you are absolutely saved. You're absolutely in a relationship with God. But you're letting sin reign over your life. And it stills the abundant life that God, God has for us. See, this is so important for us to realize that, that sin's penalty is gone the moment we believe, but sin's power is gone only as we actively kill it from our lives. Only as we actively deal with it and, and walk alongside the gospel to let it drain out the power that sin has over us. It must be defeated daily. 
It's something that we must remain in the, the freedom that we've been given. There, there's a great quote by a, a, an old pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. I want to just think about this for a minute before we close. He said, you can still be a slave experientially, even when you are no longer a slave legally. I want you to think about that. You can still be a slave experientially, even when you're no longer a slave legally. And he's saying that about the Christian life, but it applies to much more than that. Anywhere there's been a culture who has been enslaved, when they are freed, they don't know what to do with their freedom. So when you think about the Israelites leaving Egypt, they had been slaves for 400 years. And in a day they became free, but they didn't understand what it meant to be free. And so they still live like slaves. That the same thing is true if you study uh, the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation that after Abraham Lincoln and even after the Civil War, we're told that there were, there were people who could not shake their identity as slaves. And they were trying to figure out what it looked like to live a normal life, but when their old masters would come around, they would tremble and quake and they would become subservient to whatever their former master said. Right? There's, there's something in us that even when we're no longer slaves legally, we can still be a slave experientially. And, and you as a Christian, when you listen to the voice of your old master that tells you that you are nothing but an addict, when you listen to your old master that tells you you'll never move past this, when you listen to your old master that tells you that you're worthless, that you're a failure, you're doing the same thing. You've been given a new position legally and yet experientially you still find yourself a slave. And so whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here in his word that we are in Christ and we're no longer under the reign of sin. We've been given a new life and a new master and, and freedom. And when we fall into sin, it's simply because we've forgotten who we are and Paul is just saying, I want you to remember this and, and consider yourself. What I've already said is true of you. You have a new identity. And, and so this is the gospel. And this is what for me, thankfully, for the last 15 years has just given me life over and over again as I've run back to it. That, that there's something in my life more than just being forgiven for my sins. There's this power and authority that comes with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, many of you have always felt like something is missing and, and this is it. That, that you understand some of the gospel, that you've heard this before, but for a lot of us, we're living with only half the gospel that is both death and resurrection. It's both forgiveness and, and power over sin. And so what I want to do tonight as we close, I want to just have some time and, and I want these two promises to just flood over us and wash over us. So I'm going to ask John to come back up and play some songs for us. What we're going to do, I want you just to, to, to sit or stand, whatever you want to do, to sing these songs. But I want you to be really thinking about this, this, this first promise. Because some of you may be weaker on the first and the second. You may be trying to live in freedom, but you're still dealing with this, this guilt. And I want these two truths of the gospel. I want to ask the Lord just to help us move these truths from, from our heads into our hearts. So I'm going to put a truth up, and then John's going to come play two more songs. I'm going to ask our, our residents and interns to kind of just spread around the room. If you need someone to pray with, this is a great time to just stand up and begin to deal with this, but this is the first half of the gospel, that, that Jesus died on the cross to offer me full forgiveness from the penalty of sin. And if you've never understood that, that's, that's what Paul's been arguing for the beginning of Romans, that, that he offers you something that you don't have to earn anymore, that, that he died to offer you forgiveness fully from the penalty of, of sin. So I've got 1 John 1, 7 through 10. It's these, these beautiful words that I want us to find life in as we sing, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
And so I want to just take a, a little bit of time just to, to, to let that sink in. Some of you may have believed that a long time ago. And I want to encourage you that you would believe that again, that, that you are forgiven in a private moment between you and God. That, that when you confess to him, to God alone, to the sacrifice of Jesus, he forgives you immediately in that moment. And so this is where the action that we call faith begins. That you don't just know that, that but you act on that. That God has sent his son Jesus to free you, to forgive you. And so if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that now. You can do that alone. You can do that with someone standing around the room. You can do that with a friend. But that you would accept that the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, that you would feel full forgiveness tonight. And, and then kind of the second part of that is, like I said earlier, I prayed that prayer a million times because I wasn't sure. And, and I want a lot of you who've prayed that prayer and you're pretty sure you're already a believer, I want you to sit and I want you to, to just ask the Lord to bring to your mind and to bring to your heart things that you still feel guilty about things that, that, that just kind of haunt you, and I want you to, to think about that and take it to the cross and let these words be true. That the moment that you believed, whether that was tonight or whether that was 10 years ago, the moment you believed all of your sin, past and present and future, was wiped away. And it's this beautiful truth that you don't have to carry around guilt, you don't have to carry around shame, that Christ knows everything about you.